Thank you, Becky and Francis, for that ministry and music. Well, I don't have a handout for tonight, so uh, I would invite you to open your Bibles to Habakkuk. And uh, sorry if I didn't give you adequate warning here, but uh, there are plenty of Bibles located directly underneath you in your pew racks, and I'd encourage you to open up to that book of the Bible. We're going to be going through the entire book, believe it or not, and that's quite a challenge, but I want to tackle the whole book as a unit uh, tonight, if possible, and uh, we'll endeavor to get that done in time. Have you ever watched the news on a given evening and noticed all of the evil that there is in the world? Have you ever wondered why God doesn't do more to stop it? Why are there so many evil people who cause so much suffering? Why the wicked and the dishonest prosper? These are questions that we might think multiple times in our lives, and they're not new questions. They have been around for thousands of years. And in fact, they are the questions that the prophet named Habakkuk, whose book we'll study tonight, um, tackles in his book. So that makes it a very relevant book for us to study this evening. So as you're turning there, um, I'm going to just do something a little differently. Um, rather than tackle just a small piece of it, we're going to try and cover it in an overview sense. It means we can't cover, there's no way we could cover every single verse that Habakkuk has, but we'll try to get a general sense of the message of the book and the conversation that takes place between Habakkuk and God. It's a relatively small book, but uh, there's still plenty of us to tackle, so we'll get started. And Habakkuk is a book that was written in the nation of Judah during the time of the kings, before the nation was exiled by Babylon. To give you some sort of context, uh, way back in the books of Samuel, God established Israel as a nation by giving it their first king, Saul. And after him came David, who I trust you all know, uh, and then after him his son Solomon. But after Solomon, you might recall that the kingdom gets divided into a northern and southern kingdom, two nations, Israel and Judah. And pretty much from that time forward, both nations were led by wicked kings, with the exception of a few, who led their people into idolatry and further sin. And the nations became so evil that God finally exiled the two of them in two stages. Finally, I'm sorry, first Assyria exiled the nation of Israel in 722 B.C., and then Babylon would exile Judah in 586 B.C. The book of Habakkuk takes place after Israel was exiled, but before Judah was exiled. And that's the background of the book, and that's important to know. Judah is still a nation, but it's in sin. Well, who was this prophet Habakkuk? Before we dive in, it's helpful to know something about him. Like other minor prophets, we do not know very much about him. His name is quite curious. It either means to embrace or it means to wrestle. And I think that will be very telling of the book's theme because throughout the book, we will find that he wrestles with some very important questions, but in the end, he will embrace God's answer. So I just find that very peculiar that we don't know exactly what his name means and both interpretations uh, would lead us to something interesting. But we'll get into that more later. Aside from his name, the only other things we know about him is that he lived in Judah and that because of the time he wrote, he would have preached at the same time as our more, more well-known prophet of Jeremiah. So he would have lived at the same time. What was the world like in Habakkuk's day? Can we take ourselves back into the, the area in which he lived? 
Well, uh, given the date that we estimate for the book and the fact that he lived in Judah, many have guessed that he would have grown up during the reign of Josiah. He would have witnessed many of the reforms that took place during his reign in Judah. Uh, But Josiah was the last righteous king to sit on the throne. And if you know anything about the the life of Josiah, you know he was made king at age eight and that it was he who discovered the books of the law after they had been neglected for so many years. And upon discovering them and reading them, realizing all that God required of his people, he tore his clothes, he wept, he called a a great assembly to uh, rededicate uh, the nation to following God's laws once again. And so there was a great reform under King Josiah. But unfortunately, he was the last of his kind. Those who followed him were very evil. Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah, who was the king when Judah was exiled. So when Josiah died, all of his reforms, it seemed, died with him. And there was almost no trace of godliness to be found in Judah. The prophet Jeremiah described the wickedness of Judah before Jerusalem's defeat by the Babylonians. And we read in Jeremiah 22, verse 17. You don't have to turn there. It says, but you are always thinking and looking for ways to increase your holding by dishonest means. Speaking of Judah, your eyes and your heart are set only on killing some innocent person and on committing fraud and oppression. So you see, these were dark days for Judah, for there was widespread wickedness all around. That's the background of this book of Habakkuk, and it it proves to be very important as we see what the prophet talks about. Now, as we see, Habakkuk will begin with a central question to God, and that is, why, God, do you allow such evil to exist in Judah and in the world in general? Again, I'll say that. Why, God, do you allow such evil to exist in Judah and in the world in general? God's going to answer him by saying that he is just and he will judge both Judah and the wicked nation Babylon that will eventually exile them. And by the end of the book, Habakkuk's closing attitude is one of acceptance of God's plan for God's future justice. So if you were to pick commentaries uh, on Habakkuk, pick them up, read them, you'll notice that they have appropriate titles like From Worry to Worship or From Fear to Faith. And what they're trying to capture in these titles is this progression that Habakkuk makes from questioning God to trusting God. And really, the book reads like a conversation. Here's where having those little subtitles in your Bible is really helpful. If you look down in your Bible and you see them in the beginning of chapters or sections, if it has titles that are in italics, those, those aren't a part of the original text. Understand that. Okay, the paragraphs, they were made by translations. Okay, so... These are the author's best guesses as to where to break these conversations up. And they be, they're very helpful when we study books like Job, where it kind of tells us who's talking. If it's, if it's Job or if it's one of his friends or, or if it's God who's speaking, right? But here, hopefully, your Bible will divide this up into the sections of the conversation. And if not, just look at it in general. Without looking at specific uh, verses, here is the outline of the book. We start with Habakkuk's complaint. That's in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1. He asks, why doesn't God judge the evil of this world? That's his basic question. Then if we look on to uh, verses 5 through 11, we see God's answer. And God answers him by saying, I will punish Judah's wickedness through the Babylonians. Next, Habakkuk answers. He follows up um, with a further complaint. And he says, how can God use an even more wicked nation to judge God's people? 
That's found in chapter 1, verses 12 through chapter 2, verse 1. And then God has a follow-up answer to that. In chapter 2, verse 2 through 20, he says, I will punish the Babylonians as well and reward the faithful. Habakkuk's confession of faith is what comes last. That's in chapter 3. And, and in the end, he essentially says that, yes, God will judge, yet he will also be my strength no matter what comes along the way. So there's the outline. It's a conversation. So let's try and go through this section by section and see what this book has to say to us. Habakkuk's question, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Now, verse 1, uh, we're going to skip over a little bit. That just says the oracle which Habakkuk saw. That's the author. And then verses 2 and 4, he see, we see his main complaint. He says, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. So if we had to boil down uh, verses 2 through 4 down to one sentence, it might be this. Why, God, do you tolerate so much violence and injustice in this world? Or something that, to that effect. Habakkuk sees all of these things happening, and specifically, he sees them happening in his own country. Not just in other parts of the world, not just with these so-called pagan nations, but I think really Habakkuk is talking specifically here about the injustice that he sees in his own nation. You know, that's a proper, proper view of evil. He's not just saying, why, God, do you allow so much evil in a foreign country like Iran or, or North Korea or wherever we might say nowadays. But he says, God, why do you allow so much evil in our own nation? Why is there so much evil, we might say, in Lebanon, in the city, in the country? Okay? Not just everywhere, not just in, in, in these foreign nations, but in our own county. We shouldn't be so blind as to think that our city or that our state or our nation is somehow special. That when we think about evil in the world, we're not just thinking about evil as, it, as if it's something over there, something across the ocean where uncivilized people live, where they're committing all sorts of evil, atrocious acts. No, I think if we look carefully, we know that even in our own backyard, evil takes place and is just as rampant as anywhere else in the world. If we're like Habakkuk, it's natural for us to be outraged by it, to wonder why evil is allowed to exist at all. Habakkuk was outraged by the violence and injustice in his society, and he lists six different problems. And he emphasizes just how bad things were. He says there were violence, if you're looking back through these verses. There's injustice. There's destruction. Again, he mentions violence, number four. Then strife. And then finally, conflict. All of this existed in the world he lived in. And, and I, I could ask you, do you think those kinds of things exist in our society as well? Well, certainly. And there's no question. There's violence all over the place. Violence in the streets. Violence within marriages. Violence against children, violence from children against adults, violence between kids at school. There's injustice in our legal system, crooked cops, bribes taken, destruction of property, conflict between people, impatient people in our world, road rage, arguments in stores. I could go on and on. 
These things are everywhere today, and you've seen them with your own eyes. Selfishness abounds, and where selfishness abounds, conflict abounds as well. And in verse 4, he says something very specific. He says the law is paralyzed. In other words, God's law no longer had any influence in Habakkuk's world. Nobody cared about it. No one enforced it. God's word was no longer the standard. And we see that's even the case in our own lives, right? Now, people aren't really concerned today about obeying the Ten Commandments. In fact, it's kind of been pushed out of the schools. It's not even something that you're really allowed to mention. Even the, the uh, Pledge of Allegiance okay, is you know, kind of in question with one nation under God. Okay? The whole idea of God telling us what to do is just a foreign idea to our society. Um, the law is paralyzed, just as it was back in Habakkuk's day. The attitude is one of, so what? You know, so, so what if God says such and such? So what if the Bible tells me I can't do a certain thing? Nobody cares. And so the result is people do whatever they want. That's what happened in Habakkuk's day. And Habakkuk preached against people's wickedness, but it had little effect. So Habakkuk raises a good question. Why does God allow this evil that's so rampant in our world to go unpunished? To him, it seemed like God was, God's word was losing or that God was somehow losing. Or instead, that, that God knew what was happening, but he didn't seem to care. So he asked, why do the wicked prosper? Why doesn't God act? And I think that's a legitimate question for us to ask sometimes. Maybe you've thought that before. Some people look at these verses and think that um, Habakkuk is acting out of line. I don't think he's acting out of line here just yet. Um, if you notice in verse 2, Habakkuk has been praying about this. He says, how long will I call? David cried out um, from God in the Psalms in a very similar tone. I think when we start in the book of Habakkuk, there's some similarities between what we talked about this morning and, and this portion of Scripture where he's just saying, God, I don't understand. Please, please help me here. I don't understand why you allow this to, to take place. And so from time to time, we might ask that question as well. When we don't understand God's plan, we might ask God, God, what's going on? What, what's, what's happening? I wish I could know more about your will here. God's answer comes in verses 5 through 11. And we see that he does answer. And he does so by essentially telling Habakkuk that he will act. He is planning on acting. He is not asleep. He has not let all this happen without his knowledge. But the way he's going to act is going to surprise Habakkuk in a way that he didn't see coming. For God says he's going to raise up the Babylonians who are wicked and ruthless so that they will punish the wicked people in Judah. And that's his answer. He tells Habakkuk, you would not believe it if you were told. Why does God say that? Because the Babylonians really were wicked. God anticipates how hard it would be for the prophet to accept this notion of an evil people being God's solution to the problem. And verses 6 through 11 describe just how evil they are. We won't get into all that description. We've got to keep moving. But trust me, it's there. God describes. He knows how evil this, this people group is. And despite how evil they are, God says, nevertheless, he's still going to use them as agents of his judgment. This points us to another principle that we can learn from Habakkuk. We see here the, the principle that God works out all things for his will, even the evil of this world. In this case, God uses evil people to bring judgment. It shows that God is in control of everything, even things we would 
want to say that no, God's, that's not God acting, that, that must be Satan acting. No, God is using even the wicked acts of this world for his overall plan. And here Habakkuk is just for, fortunate enough to see it, for God to explain it to him a little more fully than we might understand. It shows that um, God could theoretically use a foreign nation even to judge our own nation. That's, that's a very real application of this passage. Um, that God could decide, if he wanted to, to, to use a foreign nation to bring judgment against the United States. Now, that concept is misused by a lot of people. And so some people immediately jump to, when, when we look back at 9-11, some people have been saying, oh, that's God's judgment on this, this or this. Okay? First of all, there's no specific reason why some people point out certain sins that God is judging versus other ones. And usually the sins that people do point out are ones that they feel they're safely distant from. So it's this, this people group over here, um, the, the, the sins of them that, that God is judging, not anything in my own heart. Secondly, we don't, we don't have um, God coming out of the clouds telling us that that is what was going on. So I wouldn't necessarily get behind every time somebody's saying that, you know, when this attack happens, therefore it must be God judging. If, if, if Mexico tomorrow bombs Canada, okay, I'm not going to say to you that that is God's judgment on Canada for some reason, okay? Sometimes things are just happening for other purposes. We don't have this divine pronouncement about what all these are about, but my point is that it can happen. Some have taken um, that conversation about 9-11 to, to the fullest extreme the other way and say, no, God would never do that. God doesn't judge in that way. Well, we see from Habakkuk that, yes, he does. He does from time to time use another nation to judge another wicked nation. It's possible. We shouldn't be quick to claim that we know when all that is happening, but the principle is that it does happen and God can use it because he is God. He can do whatever he wants. He can judge however he deems fit, even if it doesn't make sense to us. So God says he's going to use an evil nation to judge Judah. What is um, Habakkuk's response to God's answer? We see in verse 12 of chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk's response. He doesn't respond very well. I'll sum, summarize it for you then, that way. Uh, chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. He says, O oh Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O oh Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O oh Rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? This is an interesting section because a few years ago I would have interpreted it in an entirely different way. But as I've studied more, I have really come to believe that Habakkuk's answer here is not a positive one. It's rather a negative one and that he is not receiving what God has just told him very well at all. A few years ago... Um, you know, I, I would have come to this and, and thought that he's saying, as a profession of faith, we will not die. Um, God, whatever you do, you're not going to ultimately kill us. But when you look at it in the context of the verses that surround it, it really comes off more as a, a, an act of defiance, a statement of defiance. God, you're not going to really do what you say you're going to do. We're not going to die. That doesn't make sense. You wouldn't actually use the Babylonians to judge us. They are more unrighteous than us. God, we're not going to, to die. You see, I think here we have a perfect example of how we can take questioning God too far. 
Habakkuk is essentially saying in these verses, God, what you just said to me doesn't make sense. God, I don't really believe that's going to happen. That, that doesn't make sense that you'd use a wicked nation to judge us. He says in verse 13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate long. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Oh God, we won't die. That can't possibly be right. Um, here I think, again, he's going a little bit too far than he should. This morning I said that God allows us to be honest when we don't understand his plan. But I think Habakkuk is taking it a step further than that. He's actually telling God, no, God, you are wrong. You can't possibly do what you are saying will happen because then you would be unjust. God, if you do what you say you're going to do, then you would be allowing a wicked nation to judge. And that just doesn't make sense to me. God, you, you need to explain what you're doing. But I think what he's saying here is, is taking it over the line a bit. We don't have the right to do that. We don't have the right to question God and say, God, no, your plan is wrong. God, I don't believe you. you. You say this is what you're going to do, but that doesn't make sense in my mind. My limited understanding doesn't comprehend it. Therefore, it can't possibly be right. Yes, you can come to God when your life is a mess and say, God, help me because I don't see what you're doing here. That's what Asaph did this morning. But we're not given the right to say, God, you don't know what you're doing. You are ruining everything. In Romans 9.20, this is a helpful verse for us to understand. It says, but who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? And I understand there's, con there's, there's context to that. There's a conversation and a topic that Paul is addressing there. He's talking about election and, uh, and there's a lot going on in Romans 9.20. But it's a good principle for us to remember. Before we get off on this this uh, idea that we can just question God in whatever ways we feel like, we need to remember verses like that, where we say, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? The implied answer to that verse is, you're nobody. Um, I like the way Matt Chandler explains this concept in his book, The Explicit Gospel. It's a book I'm reading uh, lately. And he comments this way. He says, Romans 9.20 is God's way of saying through Paul, are you serious? You're going to scrutinize how I govern? Do you know that how inadequate you are to even comprehend your own life? You can't even comprehend your own shortcomings and why sin masters you, yet you'll scrutinize me? I like the way he phrases that. The application here is that we are not given free reign to question God at will, but instead we should trust him at his word. However, we see that even though Habakkuk is a prophet, he struggles with this. It seems his biggest difficulty... <clears throat> is accepting the idea that God would use a wicked nation to judge Israel. And he proceeds to tell God how bad they are, as if God didn't already know. He says, no, God, that's not going to happen. We won't die. Uh, do, you, do you not understand how wicked they are? And let me describe how wicked you because clearly you must be missing something. They've done this and this and this. And, and he gets into that description in ways, again, we don't have time to cover in detail. But he proceeds to tell God this. In verse 15, he says the Babylonians catch their enemies like fish in a net. Look down in verse 15. They do it so easily. Verse 16 says that the Babylonians, it says, offer sacrifices to their net. In other words, they boast about how strong their army is, how easily they catch and destroy those around him. So Habakkuk is saying in this whole section, see, Lord, see how wicked these people are. 
Are you really going to just keep letting them kill and destroy at will? Don't you understand that they just wipe out nations like it's nothing? It's like they're fishermen and they're just catching all these nations in their net. And then they go and sacrifice to their net. They, they worship their own gods. They rejoice in their own strength as if you don't exist. And they give credit to their gods. God, you can't possibly know what you're doing here. You can't possibly be saying that this is what you are going to do to judge our nation. Because if you really thought about it, you would understand that this is a wicked nation and you wouldn't be acting that way. Surely not, God. God wouldn't do something like that. That's Habakkuk's response. And so as we go into chapter 2, we see Habakkuk's arrogance just a little bit more. I like this part. I don't like it because it's, it's a response he shouldn't have. But it fits right with the context of what we've just been talking about. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. And I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. He says, basically, I'll wait here, Lord, and you answer me. I've, I've shown you the problems with your plan. And I'm going to wait here and and I'm just going to wait until you have the courage to answer me back for these very legitimate questions I've brought to you. So you can see how how arrogant that kind of stance is before God. And God answers him. Oh, God does answer him, in fact. But uh, he he doesn't answer back to Habakkuk as if he has to provide an explanation. God continues on with what he was doing was going to tell him all along and further describes it and just kind of brushes past the arrogance of Habakkuk and, uh, <coughs> and tells him what he's about to do. God answers in chapter 2, verses 2 through 20. He tells the prophet in a very direct way, essentially, to paraphrase, oh, you don't think I'm going to do what I say. You think I'm joking here. In verse 2, God says, write this down, Habakkuk. Write it on tablets because what I'm going to What I'm saying is going to come to pass really soon. And so from verse 4 onward, God says that he is aware that Babylon is not a righteous um, nation. He is aware that they are proud. He is not ignorant, as Habakkuk has made it seem. And in chapter 2, verse 4, it is here where God issues a gentle rebuke to Habakkuk. He says, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. That's a... That's a verse we love to put on T-shirts. That's like a, a coffee cup verse. The righteous will live by his faith. We love that. But in context, there's a lot more going on here. And you might think, oh, as for the proud one, Habakkuk might think that that's referring to the proud nation. And maybe in a way it is. But he's not speaking to the nation right now. He's speaking to Habakkuk. And I think in some ways it's a very gentle rebuke that God is giving him, contrasting his attitude with the way his attitude should be. As for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. In other words, Habakkuk, you shouldn't be proud about this. You shouldn't be uh, talking to me with a swagger as if you know the right way and the wrong way to go about this. The proud person like that does not have a soul right within him, but the righteous person will live by his faith. So in other words, if you really want to respond well to what I'm telling you, You should respond in faith and believe. When I say this is going to take place, you should believe it. And that is the way a righteous person should conduct himself. We need to remember God's promises to us in times when we are tempted to doubt God's goodness. 
When we don't see justice around us, we need to come and have an attitude of faith. And remember that God's promises of justice will come, will come true and come to pass. We need to live by our faith, as this verse says. For it's faith in God which makes us believe that there is light at the end of the tunnel. It's faith in God's justice which helps make it through. Habakkuk doubted God's goodness, but God assured him in mercy. Not because God had to give it a response. He didn't have to answer all these charges that Habakkuk was bringing. But God answered in grace and, and said he would certainly be just. He would certainly judge those who attack Judah. So God continues on. Again, in mercy, explaining his fuller plan, despite Habakkuk's misunderstanding of it. He gives Habakkuk assurance what he needed to hear. God assures him that he knows the Babylonians are wicked. And he assures them that their evil deeds will be judged in the end. In verse 5, he demonstrates how the Babylonians are like drunkards. This is meant to be both in a literal sense, I think, for the Babylonians were famous for their drunkenness, um, but also it's meant as a figure of speech. For the Babylonians were never content with the size of their empire. They just kept letting it grow and grow. And like a drunk person, they're never satisfied with what they have. They just keep wanting to get more and more. Just like somebody who's not satisfied with wine, they continue to drink more and more. And um, he knows their sin, God is saying, and he will judge it. To that end, in the next few verses, God gives us a series of woe speeches. Okay, and if you just glance down through your Bible in chapter 2, starting in verse 4 through verse 20, just look in that section how many times you see the word woe. Okay? And, and I think this is God's way of showing him that, yes, I understand how wicked this nation is. Woe to the proud, he says in verses 4 and 5. Woe to the greedy in verses 6 through 8. Down to verse 9 through 11. Woe to the dishonest. Woe to the violent in, in chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Woe to the sensual, verses 15 through 17. And then finally, woe to the idolater, verses 18 through 20. Those were the major sins of Babylon. And uh, chapter 2, verses 16 through 17 shows that their time of judgment would come for all of these things. And now, we don't have time to explore each of those sections in detail as I would like. Um, but as we just give an overview of this book, God is saying, he's going into great detail, explaining to Habakkuk, you, you think that I don't understand how wicked this nation is? I will tell you, and I will tell you in great detail how sinful they are. So there's no misunderstanding. It's not that I am asleep. It's not that I don't know what I'm doing. I do, Habakkuk. And I, they have sinned in this way, and they are going to get the judgment that they deserve. Babylon ultimately did fall in 539 B.C. to Cyrus of Persia. So we see that God's prediction would come true, of course. But it's not until around 60 years later. It's important to see. It took a little bit of time for this to take place, but God was faithful to his word. It did happen. We can look back in history, and this is just one more example where we see that God is faithful to his promise. Here's the last section, Habakkuk's Prayer of Praise, chapter 3. With God having reassured the prophet, we now come to this section, this conversation, and that is Habakkuk's Prayer and Praise, a response to all that God has told him. And we see now, after God has striven with him and explained things a little more fully and been gracious to him, even in the way that he has communicated his will, that Habakkuk is finally coming around. Chapter 2 um, after he had questioned God's goodness, 
God did answer him back, not as harshly as he could, but he gave a gentle rebuke and he told him, no, what he said would come to place. What, what, what he said would happen. God had just decreed it and it would take place, but God had not forgotten about justice at the same time. He would take care of the evildoers in the end. And now in chapter 3, Habakkuk has come to finally believe what God has said. He finally realizes just how serious God was about using the Babylonians to judge Judah. And now his reaction is a mixture, we see, both of fear and worship. Fear because he knows how God's plan is going to result in the death of many Jews. But worship because now he knows that God's plans are perfect and right. So read these last few verses, this last chapter, with that attitude in mind. You see, Habakkuk gets very serious. He's not throwing questions at God as willingly as he did before. Now it's starting to sink in. Now he believes God. Now he knows this is what's going to happen and the ramifications are running through his head. So with this new attitude of belief and also fear, Habakkuk begins in verses 1 and 2 by asking God to renew your deeds. In other words, to be faithful to us once again. In other words, Habakkuk says, Remind us of your goodness, O Lord. He asked God in the midst of his vengeance to be merciful to his people. In verse 2, he says, In wrath, remember mercy. To rephrase that, he's saying, God, I know that now you're serious about using this nation to judge us. We deserve it, and you are right in everything you do. I only ask this. Please don't fully destroy us. In your wrath, remember mercy as well. And then in verses 3 through 15, Habakkuk continues his prayer by telling just how fearful and awesome the Lord is. Verses 4 through 6, the prophet says that God is glorious like the sunrise, full of power from his hand. Uh, he controls the plagues and the earthquakes, very terrifying things. This section is significant because it shows that Habakkuk knows God is powerful enough to defeat evil. Um, Habakkuk confesses that God controls all things. If you look in verse 8, this can be a confusing verse, but let's explain it. Habakkuk 3.8 Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode out with your horses and your victorious chariots? That seems kind of out of the blue. What does that mean? He's talking about the Red Sea. He's, he's listing all the magnificent and off, awesome God, things excuse me, that God can do. Um, and from earthquakes to famines to pestilence, all these things. And one that he is making a reference to is the, the, the parting of the Red Sea. He says, were you angry at the waters, God, because you parted the Red Sea and they just went in two different directions? One might look at that and say, was God mad at the ocean? Of course, the answer is no, it's not. He's just renumerating on God's mighty deeds, how he, he parted the Red Sea and did these magnificent, magnificent things. Through his power. The mountain saw you and shook. You look at verse 10. And he goes on and on and on. Verses 12 through 15. Habakkuk pictures God's future act of judging the world. Just as he promised. He says, In wrath you strode through the earth. And in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people. To save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. This unique thing that we're seeing here is that he is describing it in the past tense. He's talking about something that's going to happen in the future, but in the past tense, which shows where Habakkuk has finally come. He now believes it. He knows it's going to take place, and he's already describing it as if it's a past event. And so he's saying, yes, God, I believe that you are going to judge the wicked nations around us. 
you will certainly judge our enemies. And that's where he puts his hope in. He's believing God. Verses 16 through 19, he ends by promising to wait on the Lord. But these aren't just easy words to say. It's not just a simple, God, I'll trust in you. There's a lot of emotion behind these verses, and I want you to to listen along here with me. He says, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. At the sound of what? At the sound of God uh, speaking these words to him about uh, judging them through this wicked nation and all that entails. Decay crept into my bones. My legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. In light of all that God has said and what he knows about God, it ends, again, both in reverence and trust. Verse 16 says his knees shook, his lips trembled, and he was terrified because of God's power and also because of this coming doom. He's no longer questioning, God, are you really going to send the Babylonians? He now knows it to be true. And he says, it terrifies me, but yet I'll trust in you. God, I recognize that this means that many of my friends, many of the people that I know, maybe many of my neighbors might be killed because of their wickedness. The nation I live in might be totally destroyed because of what you're about to do. I might be even in danger. But God, you are good. Your plan is always good. And therefore, I'll trust you. Listen to his powerful conclusion, verses 17 through 19. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes, me, he makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. If at all possible, I don't want you ever to quote verse 19 apart from the other verses. Okay? Can we make a pledge here and now not to do that? Because if you do that, put it on a t-shirt or put it on your Facebook page or put it on a coffee cup, it loses all of its power, I think. It's not just that he's saying, I will trust you when things are all fine and good. He's saying, everything I have might be destroyed around me. God, what you've said is difficult for me to hear. What you're saying involves much pain in my future. Not an easy road. But yet, God, through it all, I will trust in you. You will be my strength. These are good verses to remember. Kind of fitting. This was not intentional, by the way. This was a sermon I had prepared a while back. I did not mean to put together Psalm 77 in this tonight, but just so happened to be that way. In times of difficulty... I think the end of Habakkuk is a powerful section for us to refer to. Uh, difficult words for us to confess with our own lips, but ones that are challenging for us nonetheless, that I encourage you to turn to in difficult times. And that is a prayer of, God, I don't know how long this difficulty is going to last. God, you may be sending some difficult things into my life. Maybe I can see them coming. Maybe they're already upon me. But God, no matter how long you've ordained them to be, your plans are always good. Your plans are always right. You know what is best. You care for me. You love me. And you do all things well. Therefore, God, no matter how much I'm beat down, how difficult this path is, I will trust you. You will be my strength. May that be our confession. May God give us the strength to make that our confession, no matter what comes our way. Let's pray.